was October 2, 2002, a cool, crisp autumn day in Wheaton, Maryland. The skies were clear and the temperature was hovering around 60 degrees. The air was filled with the familiar sounds of rush hour traffic. Then out of nowhere came a loud noise. Kimberly Saddleson heard it and it shook her. A split second later, she heard someone a few yards away let out an agonizing groan. She turned and saw a man crumble to the ground. She stood stunned for a moment. Then she heard a male voice in another area of the parking lot call out, urging someone, anyone, to call 911. Saddleson pulled out her cell phone and made the call. 911, emergency. Hi, um, I'm at Stoppers Warehouse on um, Randolph Road, and some man just on the parking lot, there was a loud noise, I'm not sure if he was shot or not. During the next 20 days, across a 100-mile radius, 12 more people would be shot at random, making it one of the worst homicidal rampages in U.S. history. Local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies would collaborate on an unprecedented joint effort, but one that led them to one dead-end trail after another. So who was doing this? Was it international terrorism? Was it domestic terrorism? What was the motive? Was there more than one shooter? Literally thousands of leads would be chased down before the multi-jurisdictional task force got a hold of one vital clue. After that, investigators learned that the rampage didn't actually start on October 2nd, and it wasn't restricted to the nation's capital and the dense neighborhoods around it. The killing spree had actually started eight months earlier and almost 3,000 miles away. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers. This is Tony Holt. For 20 years, I was a newspaper reporter covering police agencies, courthouses, and city halls across Virginia, Florida, and Arkansas. I've written about serial killers, covered executions, and exposed the good, bad, and ugly sides of law enforcement and politics. But there was no case that I ever covered that had as many twists, turns, and tragedies than the Beltway Sniper case. During the early to mid-2000s, I worked in the Washington, D.C. area covering crime and court news. It was there that I wrote story after story about the D.C. snipers. The shootings, the manhunt, the trials, the jury verdicts, and a pivotal U.S. Supreme Court ruling. Since then, there have been court decisions that could still alter the fate of one of the convicted killers. Chapters are still being written about this case, one that has left an imprint on the minds of countless people who lived inside and just outside the Capitol Beltway two decades ago. In spite of the abhorrent manner in which people's lives were affected by the sniper shootings, there are lasting stories of triumph, particularly from shooting survivors. And it was just like a loud bang, uh, like a grenade went off. Instinctively, I just knew that I was shot. As soon as I got in my car, I shut the door and it, almost immediately the window exploded. There were also valuable lessons learned by law enforcement. It was obvious to all of us that these were not the right guys. The reason why the feds came in was because they told them they were coming in. 
There are legacies to be reconsidered. Chief Moose was very impressive. He shut him down right away and said that the FBI is involved. He was concerned about the integrity of the prosecution, and I thought that spoke well of him. And there's also the ongoing debate on whether justice was properly served to one of the defendants in this case. The jury's decision today surprising to many. During a three-week stretch 20 years ago, the sixth largest metropolitan area in the United States was under siege. Of the 13 people who were shot by the D.C. snipers, 10 of them were killed. The shooting victims were carrying out mundane, everyday tasks, walking to the grocery store, pumping gas, waiting for a bus, loading the car with shopping items, mowing a lawn, leaving a restaurant, being dropped off at school. The snipers' victims were men and women of various racial and ethnic backgrounds. One of the victims was a 13-year-old boy. The killers did not discriminate. They were looking for unsuspecting people who were relatively still, sitting, standing, or strolling, easy to line up through the sights of their military-style rifle. Those killed in the D.C. area included a computer programmer for the federal government, a landscaper, a cab driver, a house-cleaning worker, a nanny, a carpenter, an engineer, a businessman, an analyst with the FBI, and a bus driver. Those 23 days in October 2002 were terrifying for those living in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding suburbs across Maryland and Virginia. Shootings and sightings of the snipers were reported from Baltimore, Maryland to Burlington, North Carolina. A failed attempt at capturing the shooters occurred five miles from the Richmond city line. Fear gripped residents across three metropolitan areas. Schools were closed. Football games were canceled. Restaurants were empty. People were running in zigzag patterns across parking lots before entering stores. Those who pumped gas, if they were brave enough to go to a gas station, did their best to hide while doing so. A few years prior to the sniper shootings, the major fear people had as the calendar year 2000 approached was whether the Y2K bug would cause worldwide paralysis for everything operated by a computer, including airline travel, the banking industry, and the U.S. military. The 20th century practice of using only two digits instead of four to designate a year caused a literal panic. People assumed mainframes would crash. And that unreasonable fear elicited a readiness level that hadn't been seen since the early half of the Cold War. As it turned out, disaster was averted as the calendar changed. People resumed living as if it was peacetime, which it was. And it seemed that the nation's capital was in good spirits going forward, aside from the occasional political scandal. But Washingtonians weren't going to remain distracted by the Monica Lewinsky's and Gary Condit's of the world for much longer. Bedlam and violence were coming. There is a lot of confusion here at the Pentagon. It appears that uh, something hit uh, the Pentagon on the outside of the fifth corridor. A total of 2,994 people would die on that day, mostly at the site of the World Trade Center in downtown Manhattan. But 184 people were killed during the September 11, 2001 attack on the Pentagon. That same day, 
another plane was hijacked by al-Qaeda terrorists and rerouted to the U.S. Capitol, but passengers attempted to regain control of the plane, causing it to crash in rural Pennsylvania. Forty passengers and crew members died in that crash. It was clear that Washington, D.C. was a target for the most dangerous terrorist network in the world at that time. In the wake of that realization, about a month after 9-11, D.C. was besieged by acts of bioterrorism. I don't have anthrax. And, uh... Good morning. President Bush tries reassuring the nation after anthrax is found at a facility that handles mail going to the White House. Five people were killed during the 2001 anthrax attacks, including two postal workers in Washington, D.C. A year later, D.C. area residents were coming unglued again as a serial sniper tandem was turning suburban Maryland, the district, and northern and central Virginia into a kill zone. Virtually every law enforcement agency in this area, including local police, the FBI, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service, is looking for whoever is responsible for the worst murder spree that has ever happened here. The sniper's first victim that fateful October was James Martin. He was fatally shot while on his way to shop for groceries for his church. James Martin was a 55-year-old computer programs analyst for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. He was married and had an 11-year-old son. He was headed home from work Wednesday, October 2nd, when he pulled off Georgia Avenue and into the parking lot by the Shoppers Food Warehouse. Martin decided to stop there to buy groceries. He'd never shopped there before. Martin regularly bought supplies if it meant doing so for a good cause. A couple years earlier, when a colleague suggested the office should adopt a local public school, Martin enthusiastically endorsed that idea. Pretty soon, he and his Mazda pickup were regularly seen at Shepherd Elementary School in Northwest D.C. Teachers and students at the school adored him. The staff at Shepherd told him he missed his calling. He should have been a teacher, they said. He was a natural around kids. Martin parked his Mazda in front of the store, located at the corner of Georgia Avenue and Randolph Road. It was a little after 6 p.m. and traffic was heavy, as it always was at that intersection that time of day. Martin was walking toward the front entrance when the shot rang out. Almost instantly, he fell to the blacktop. He'd suffered a bullet wound to his back. It ripped through his spine, just below his shoulder blades. The bullet perforated his aorta and the pulmonary artery to his lungs. The round exited through his chest. Across the street from the grocery store was a Montgomery County police officer, Alan Felson. Just like Kimberly Saddleson, the witness who had called 911, Felson heard a boom. He was struck by how loud it was, but he didn't consider that it could have been a rifle shot. There wasn't that unmistakable crack sound that usually follows a rifle being fired. So Felson thought maybe a loaded pallet had fallen somewhere at one of the neighboring industrial sites. Felson had finished a bicycle patrol and was wrapping up his shift. He had just pulled out of 4th District Police Headquarters across the street. He had cut through an apartment complex and was about to turn onto a back road when he heard the noise. His window was down, so he clearly heard it. Because it was so unusually loud and because so many people were around, he decided to investigate it. 
Felsen didn't see anyone running, nor did he hear anyone screaming when he looked toward the store. But out of caution, he activated his emergency lights and pulled into the parking lot. As he rolled closer, he saw people standing around looking stunned. The police officer asked what was going on, but no one answered. He asked a second time, and still no one answered. Then he saw a man lying face down near a pickup truck. Piecing that image with the sound he'd heard a minute earlier, Felsen realized what had happened. He made the call on his radio. Disturbing you, sir. I thought it was a shotgun on shopping center. I'm in front of the uh, Super Fresh, and I have one down. Felsen parked the cruiser and rushed toward the victim. He asked the group of bystanders whether any of them saw anything. He was still getting no answers. It was though people were too shocked to speak. Felsen stopped asking questions and started giving orders. He told everyone in the vicinity to stay put. Other first responders were on their way to the scene. Where are you, Felsen? Sit in front of the right? Shopper, shopper, where are you? Anybody been shot? Felsen had been more than a police officer during his career. He'd previously been a volunteer firefighter, so he had some emergency medical training. He'd seen bullet wounds before, but had never seen so much blood come out of a single bullet wound. The victim's shirt, tie, and coat were soaked. He put on a pair of latex gloves and began chest compressions. He heard a female voice among the spectators. A woman walked up to him and asked whether she could help. She was a local volunteer EMT who Felsen knew. He asked her to grab his first aid bag from his cruiser. She fetched her own bag instead and sprinted back to assist Felsen. Another nurse showed up and the three frantically tried to resuscitate Martin, even as survival seemed like an impossibility. Moments later, after several police officers and paramedics showed up and took over the scene, Felsen started washing off his arms with gauze and disinfectant. Now it was Felsen's turn to look bewildered. He couldn't understand how or why the man in the parking lot was shot in broad daylight with so many witnesses around. He waited on the detectives. It was already shaping up to be a strange night for Montgomery County Police. The shooting of James Martin was actually the second shooting of the day in the area. The first one happened less than an hour earlier, a few miles away, in Aspen Hill, at another commercially dense intersection in Montgomery County. Morning, police operator 1652, Hi, uh, this is Debbie Case, Mr. Manager at the Michaels in Aspen Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, we just had somebody fire some sort of projectile through the window of the store. Uh, it's created a splatter pattern of about six inches, and uh, I guess they need to have somebody come check that out in case there's somebody out in the parking lot with something they shouldn't have. Did this happen, ma'am? It just happened, yes, within five minutes here. The bullet that went through the window struck an illuminated numbered sign at one of the checkout aisles. No one was hurt. Shooting just occurred. No one's been hit. Aspen Hill Shopping Center, 13601 Connecticut Avenue. A Debbie Kay at Michaels advises she heard one shot and it caused a splattered glass pattern in the window. The bullet's trajectory was straight and about seven feet above the ground. Police wondered, but weren't sure, whether the Michaels shooting and the Shoppers Food Warehouse shooting were related. They'd have to ponder that later. The homicide scene would take precedence. 
Patrick McNerney was a detective in the Major Crime Division, homicide section of the Montgomery County Police Department. He was working the late shift and got the call about the Shoppers Food Warehouse shooting from someone at the communications center. He and a team of evidence technicians rushed to that scene. That particular store was really busy that night uh, with rush hour traffic. And then obviously when you get a bunch of cops running in, lights and siren to a location, well, everybody wants to see what's going on. So that just enhanced it. McNerney knew that every minute was valuable. He and the evidence technicians needed to cordon off the area and preserve evidence. So they got there as fast as they could. Various witnesses, including Officer Felson, told McNerney that they had heard a boom. An assumption was made by someone early on that the shooter fired the bullet from the direction of the store, but nobody saw anyone in or near the building with a gun. Nick DiCarlo, a sergeant with the Montgomery County Police and a supervisor in the Major Crimes Division, also showed up. McNerney led the investigation, but DiCarlo had tactical command of the scene and assisted McNerney. The pair reviewed the footage from a security camera on the premises. The camera captured James Martin pulling into the parking lot from Randolph. The victim is seen getting out of his vehicle and taking up to 10 steps toward the store before falling to the ground. No one was close to him. There was no trace of a firearm anywhere. The two men took a closer look at the body that was still lying in the parking lot. The first responders who worked on Martin had flipped him over to administer chest compressions. So the victim was lying face up when DiCarlo and McNerney walked over to take a closer look. Here is Nick DiCarlo describing what they observed. Detective McNerney and myself rolled the body over and examined the what we saw to be the entrance wound, a very small entrance wound in the center of the back. And then rolling Mr. Martin over and observing the front, we observed what was uh, exit wound in essentially the center of his chest. It wasn't an exit wound from a gunshot that we have seen before. It was more of a uh, jagged, irregular uh, exit wound, very small cuts and slices. DiCarlo, who by then had been with the department for close to 30 years, realized the victim was shot and killed with a rifle, and he had been shot in the back. Judging by the wound and the video footage, there was no question in DiCarlo's mind that James Martin was killed by someone firing a rifle at long range. A rifle is not the weapon of choice in a metropolitan area for violent crimes. At least it wasn't 20 years ago. So this was new. It was still daylight, but no one noticed anything. Someone mentioned something about a Toyota speeding away, but that gave detectives nothing to go on. There was so much traffic on Georgia Avenue and Randolph Road and the parking lot was packed. There were no woods around. There was even a police station across the street. The nearest patrol officer showed up in less than a minute. The shooting was as brazen as it was mysterious. Derek Belisles was a public information officer for the Montgomery County Police Department. He was on call that night and responded to the scene to handle the media presence that was sure to come. As he was being briefed, he realized there were many abnormalities about this particular murder scene. 
normally in most cases, you've got witnesses who saw something, heard something, heard maybe an argument, and then uh, a gunshot, and then beaten feet, squealing tires. But there was nothing like that at this scene. It was as if it just happened out of, out of nowhere. So it had a real peculiar feel to the whole thing. Reporters were gathering what they could from Belial's and relaying it to their station. A few miles from the scene, James Martin's wife, Billy, learned about the shooting on the local news. She kept waiting for her husband to come home, but he never showed. Her sense of dread got so strong that she asked a friend of hers, a neighbor, to drive to the shopper's food warehouse and find out whether James was the fatal victim of the shooting. Her friend showed up and spoke to a uniformed officer who led him to Detective McNerney. We're probably like an hour or two into the scene, and this man comes up to one of the uniform officers and says, hey, listen, uh, I'm, I'm here because my neighbor thinks it's her husband. We have not released any information at this point. It's way, way too early for that. So he comes up with the correct name. McNerney confirmed to the man that the victim was James Martin. The detective asked the neighbor to accompany him to the Martin house. McNerney needed to personally deliver the news to Billy. He was joined by another detective, and they headed there. McNerney said to the other detective, we're going to change her life 180 degrees when we talk to her. After the detectives pulled into the driveway, Billy met them on the front porch. McNerney delivered the news. Billy shed a few tears, but she was more stoic compared to most people who find out that their spouse had just been murdered. She had been bracing herself for the worst possible news, so she absorbed it better than expected. That's not to say she wasn't emotional. Later in the conversation, she repeatedly asked the detectives, what do I do? The detectives were never invited inside. The three spoke for an hour on the porch. The couple's 11-year-old son remained in the house for a while, but at one point he walked outside and spoke to his mother, looking sullen. He asked her, does this mean we're going to have to move? Before he left, McNerney gave Billy his business card and promised he'd be in touch with her. He intended to speak to her again as early as the next day, but that didn't happen. McNerney never got a chance to speak to Billy again. His workload was about to get bigger, a lot bigger. Nick DiCarlo had called his boss to tell him about the Shopper's Food Warehouse shooting. News of the homicide went up the chain fast. In 2002, Montgomery County had a population of 850,000 or so residents. Prior to October 2nd, the county had tallied 20 homicides for the year. By comparison, neighboring Washington, D.C. had a population of 580,000 and a total of 264 homicides that year. So murders weren't necessarily uncommon in Montgomery, but they were infrequent enough that high-ranking officers were promptly notified whenever one was reported. They often responded to those murder scenes. They didn't think twice about responding to the Shopper's Food Warehouse shooting, considering where it happened and the strangeness of it. Around 8.30 p.m., a captain and a lieutenant showed up at the crime scene 
Meanwhile, Chief Charles Moose, who was preparing to attend a police chief's conference in Minneapolis, was kept in the know. The captain and lieutenant were as puzzled as anyone else as to why someone would shoot a man at that time of day in that spot with so many people around. They knew about the earlier shooting at the Michaels location a few miles north along Georgia Avenue and immediately suspected, along with McNerney and DiCarlo, that the two shootings were related. They decided to spend some time at the Michaels location, hoping that something would shake loose there that could help them solve the homicide case. Investigators drove to the Michaels store and spoke to a witness who was still there hours after the shooting. She not only heard the bang from inside the store, she felt something whiz above her head. Then she noticed the illuminated sign above her, a plastic box with the number five on it. It had a hole in it and it was shaking. Smoke was coming out of it. The parking lot in front of the Michaels was a bit emptier than the shopper's food warehouse. It was hard to imagine anyone firing a rifle in that location without being noticed. Someone actually did see something. A delivery driver at the Papa John's three doors down from the Michaels store was resting inside his car between deliveries when he heard a boom. The Papa John's employee was an army veteran, so he knew what a rifle shot sounded like and could easily differentiate it from the sound of a handgun being fired. After hearing the shot, he sat up and scanned the area. About 30 seconds later, he noticed a dark sedan drive across the parking lot. It was the only vehicle moving in the entire lot, so his eyes locked onto it. He would say that he saw two males inside, and they appeared to be laughing. He wasn't sure of the make or model of the car. It could have been a Ford Taurus or a Pontiac Thunderbird. He thought it was blue, but he wasn't even sure of that. The Pampa Johns driver spoke up, but no one took his story all that seriously. He described where he had seen the two males, but authorities didn't think the rifle could have been fired from that area of the parking lot. The description of the car was so vague that it was easily dismissed, much like the Toyota that was seen pulling away at the shopper's location. It was later learned that the shooter was aiming for someone when the round was fired. The bullet missed the head of a skateboarder and entered the window of the store. The person on the skateboard apparently never realized someone had tried to shoot him. Detective McNerney, Sergeant DiCarlo, and their supervisors decided they would get a group of officers to gather at the shopper's location the next day. They held out hope they'd hear from a witness who was willing to talk. They'd also have to look deeper into the victim's background. But no one was expecting to uncover anything. Martin didn't seem the type to have any blood feuds. Even still, they intended to check. Derek Belisles, who was wrapping up his night as the in-person police media spokesman, started to wonder about the night's events a shooting into a craft store, and a murder outside a grocery store less than an hour apart and just a few miles apart, he knew there was reason to worry. And I remember thinking at the time that, um, gee, I hope this isn't the start of something bigger or this isn't the, the beginning of something else. He wasn't the only one thinking in those terms before everyone wound down and went home. McNerney floated one possibility, one everyone hoped would remain a hypothetical scenario. Sitting there with DiCarlo, and, and it's like, this thing is just so strange. It's weird uh, how everything's kind of rolled out. And man, if we have a sniper, we got a serious problem. At 7.47 that night, less than two hours after the homicide, 
a plainclothes Montgomery County police officer was on a stolen car watch at Wheaton Plaza. The plaza was on Georgia Avenue, about a mile south of the fatal shooting. The same police officer had gone to the murder scene, but didn't stick around for long. The parking lot was already flooded with police, and he didn't think he'd be much use there. So he reported to a stakeout location. He parked at the south end of the plaza where he could keep an eye on Georgia Avenue. He would type license plate numbers into his laptop in his unmarked cruiser and run checks on them, seeing whether he'd find any that were stolen. Just another routine night for him. He spotted an old beat-up Chevrolet Caprice with New Jersey tags. It had some wear and tear, but it was the window tinting that stood out the most to the officer. The Caprice stopped at a light near the officer's location, so the police officer pulled out and started following the vehicle. He couldn't see much through the windows, but assumed there was just one person inside. He entered the tag number into his computer. The car wasn't stolen, and the driver wasn't committing any moving violations, so the officer peeled off and returned to the plaza. Coincidentally, another police officer had run a check on that very same vehicle about eight hours earlier, long before the first shooting of the day. That officer took an extra step and ran a check on the owner's name. The registered owner had a spousal protection order filed against him in another state, but nothing else. No traffic stop was conducted. So in both instances, the Caprice kept rolling down Georgia Avenue. Sometime before 10 p.m. that night, a security guard at the White Flint Mall approached a man standing behind the Lord & Taylor department store. He was standing near that same old Caprice. The unidentified man wasn't wearing any shoes, but otherwise there was nothing strange about him. The mall was about a mile north of the Capitol Beltway, also known as Interstate 495. The mall was also about four miles southwest of where James Martin had been fatally shot four hours earlier. The man the security guard talked to was mild-mannered and polite to her. She asked what he was doing, and he said he was traveling through Maryland from New Jersey with his son. He was trying to get some rest. The security guard noticed someone was inside the car, but she never got a good look at him. She told the man that the lot gates would be locked in a few hours. He needed to be gone by 1 a.m. He assured her that he would be back on the road by then. The car was still there an hour later. But by the time she went off duty, at 12.15 a.m., the Chevy Caprice was gone. A pizza delivery driver, two police officers, and a mall security guard all saw the same vehicle on the same day in proximity to two shootings. Many others would see the Caprice during the course of the next few weeks. While the pursuit of the shooter was at its frenzied peak during the coming days and weeks, people would be on the lookout for another kind of vehicle. Police are hunting for two men in a white van. I'm calling to report a white van sitting in the parking lot here. But the helicopter, no, I just had a citizen pull up and advise me that there's a white Chevy Astro van that he follows. And there's a white van just went by with two guys in it. That lookout would begin the very next day a day that would throw the entire metropolitan region into a panic. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the D.C. snipers. Montgomery County. Uh, yes, ma'am, I need police and ambulance. Okay, what's the problem? Uh, somebody's been shot down on our back lot. The president's heart goes out to the victims of these shootings and to their families. 
obviously we're dealing with an individual that that's uh, extremely violent and obviously doesn't care for you mr police call me god do not release to the press chasing ghosts is presented by law and crime music and production by Corey hiltman all 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts. <laughs>